Welcome to the Orthodox West Gazette, a miscellany of talks, interviews, ponderings, and presentations. I'm Stephen Brannan, and today I'm joined by Father Patrick Cardine for part one of a fascinating look at the history, the purpose, and the value for us today of that mysterious set of liturgies on the Western calendar, the Ember Days. Here's part one. Thanks again, Father Patrick, for joining me on the Orthodox West Gazette to talk through things uh, liturgical, spiritual, anything involving the Western Rite and its tradition for us in the Orthodox Church. It's been a little while, but I'm looking forward to this conversation uh, because where we are today is the beginning of just about the beginning of Lent. And in the first week of Lent, there is a mysterious three days on our calendar and in our liturgical books that uh, we encounter periodically in the year, but it's one of those things that I frankly don't know a ton about, either in its history or its liturgical purpose, or even the liturgies themselves, because quite frankly, it's uh, it's rare that you know we at our small church get to celebrate them, and I have a feeling that we're not um, completely alone in that. But you're going to make a case for um, the value of this particular set of liturgies and what its uh, real purpose and meaning is for us. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about that from you. So thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Tim, for um, asking me to do this. And uh, this is something actually over the last few years I've become passionate about. Uh, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, <laughs> these, these days that we're going to talk about, Ember Days, we're going to be talking about Ember Days, uh, they really are sort of a, a liturgical um, season in search of a meaning. <laughs> uh, I don't, even among the clergy, honestly, I know very few people who really connect with them. And it's primarily because yeah. we sort of lost the origin of their meaning. And um, there's been all kinds of layers added to them that have obscured what they're really all about. And, you know, I began to question this a few years ago. And go on a bit of a search to try and understand what they were all about. And as it became, as it started to unfold for me, I began to become convinced that the ember days in the year um, could be really important to shaping our Christian culture, the culture of our liturgical life of, of a small community. And so when I, when I began to see that, we purposed to have mass on all the Ember Days throughout the year. We've been doing that for years now. And by having mass and observing the days, that's it's really helped to make them a part of our life and also um, you know, reinforce how they can be important in shaping a local culture. So Ember Days, that's our topic. All right, yeah. So what are the Ember Days? <laughs> so the, this is probably going to be a two-part thing. And um, the first part is going to be the history and uh, the development of the Ember Days and just what they are. And the second part, and it might be a little tedious if you're not a, a nerd or a geek, but I, I beg you to stick with us because I think by the end, especially by the end of part two, I hope to convince you that these can be really, really important and meaningful uh, aspect of our of our life together. Um, you know, if you pay any attention to the liturgical calendar, you may be aware that there occur on our on our calendar these Ember Days. Um, it, but as you said, not not very many people know know what they're for, or what they're about. I'm going to talk a little bit about as I go why they've become so misunderstood and why they've become lost 
you know, their meaning has become lost to us um, and how they can be an important part of our devotional life. Uh, but I'll start with some definitions, just some basic definitions. In Latin, which is still used for these days, they're known as cator tempora, and this means four times. So that's the Latin term for the ember days. We, in English, we also refer to them as uh, ember weeks, ember tide. So we can call them ember tide. When we use the term tide, it actually kind of refers to like a season, a liturgical season. See, so, you know, you have epiphany tide or whatever. So ember tide, so it's, it's, it's a week, it's a certain week, um, but it's really could be thought of as a little mini liturgical season in a way, a little season. Uh, the Kator Tempura, four times, basically indicates for us that there are four sets of ember days in a calendar year, okay? Um, at each ember week, and these, these ember days occur in one week. Um, each ember week, the ember days consist of a Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday of their respective weeks. And they're basically times of fasting. Uh, we have special readings, we have special masses appointed, special offices for uh, these ember days. Um, also, importantly, they occur, or they originally always occurred, now it's sort of around these times, uh, in March, June, September, and December. So spread out across the seasons. Yeah. So immediately, as you say, what should strike us from this is that they are basically in spring, summer, fall, and winter. They uh, can be remembered. Sometimes people, it's nice to know when they're coming. It's important to know when they're coming, um, which I'm going to, we're going to see why as we go through this. But the spring ember tide always falls uh, in the week after the first Sunday of Lent. So it's always in the week okay. after the first Sunday of Lent, the first, the first week of Lent. Um, the summer ember tide always occurs in the week following Pentecost, when the octave of Pentecost. Okay. The autumn ember days always follow um, the exaltation of the Holy Cross, which is on September 14th. So if September 14th falls on a Thursday, it's the next week. You know, it's always a week after. Um, the winter ember days always follow St. Lucy's Day, which is December 13th. So those are the four times. There's an old English rhyme, and this is fun too. In the medieval times, there were always, you know, these cultural things to help people kind of remember uh, the, the, the liturgical times of the year. And there was an old English rhyme which says, Fasting days and emberings be Lent, Wit Sun, Holy Rood, and Lucy. Lent, Wit Sun, Holy Root, and Lucy. And there's a little bit more catchy uh, way to remember it. Uh, Linty, Penty, Crucy, Lucy. So, <laughs> Linty, Penty, Crucy, yeah, Lucy. So that's how I remember it. <laughs> uh, nice. Linty, Penty, Crucy, Lucy. So Lent, Penty is Pentecost. Crucy is crucified, uh, the day of the Holy Cross, uh, September 14th. And, and Lucy, St. Lucy's Day, December 13th. So that's kind of the season, that's when they occur throughout the year and a little catchy way to remember them. Um, the etymology of the English word for ember, okay, I wanna talk a little bit about that. It might sound a little nerdy at first to get into the etymology of the word, but it's actually quite interesting and it's going to be important for our understanding of what these days are all about. Um, now, mm -hmm. We use ember, ember days, ember tide, ember week in English. In the Italians and the French, 
Um, they still use the Latin to this day. That's how they refer to it, Cator Tempora. The Spanish um, and the Portuguese, um, they call these seasons temporas, temporas. Hmm. And the Germans, interestingly, and I don't know when this occurred, uh, I think it was a long time ago, but the Germans blended Cator Tempora um, into one word, and they call it uh, qua timber, qua timber. One view of the etymology of ember days is that it just comes from the German. It just got shortened instead of that. We just dropped the quat and picked up ember. So it's quatember mm-hmm. and that it, and it merged over into English as ember. And that's where it comes from. But there's another possibility, which I think is a lot more interesting and 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 probably more accurate. And that is that this word ember comes from an Anglo-Saxon Saxon word, yimbren, which is spelled Y-M-B-R-E-N, yimbren. Um, and this word yimbren in Anglo-Saxon means a circuit or a revolution, okay, something going around. Hmm. And they use this word yimbren to refer to the cycle of the year. That's what it was used for, the yearly cycle. And we have many uh, historical instances, and this is going back, you know, over a thousand years, early, early period, where there's this word yimbrin is used in a compound. So you have yimbrin tide, which is ember tide. Mm. We, we get ember tide from. Sounds like ember tide, yeah. yeah. Yimbrin wukan, which is ember weeks. Yukon means weeks. Uh, yimbrin fiston, which is fiston is fasts. So you have the Yembrin fasts. Um, mm. And these occur in lots of documents, actually. Yembrin dagas, which dagas is days. So you have the Yembrin days. Um, it also, this word also occurs in a council in the year 1009, um, which says um, the fasts of the four seasons, which are called Yembrin. So I think the evidence is pretty strong that our word ember comes from this yembrin more more than likely Hmm. um and that and so that means a revolution or to to go around exactly a cycle revolution a cycle and that's going to become the reason i want to talk about the etymology of the words because it's going to become very important to where we're going to end up with with the original meaning of of the ember tides so we starting from today in English, we've got ember, then you've got yembrin, then you've got quator tempora. But before quator tempora, before the Latin, uh, because that came in later, they were originally, because these are very ancient, they were originally just known as the fasts. The, these were these were referred to the four fasts of the year. And they acquired the the Latin quator uh, tempora in, a, in around the ninth century. And then about 200 years later, um, we get this Anglo-Saxon word develops, yembrin, and then later we come to our English word, ember, which we use today. So this is cycle that occur four times a year according to the seasons. Um, most of us are probably familiar with the, uh, the cycle of the litur- the, our liturgical cycle, uh, which we walk through every year, and it basically lays out for us the life of Christ, right? And we call this the temporal cycle, the temporal liturgical calendar cycle. Uh, There's another cycle that we have that is concurrent with the temporal cycle. It sort of overlaps it. Um, it, it, They run together, and that's the sanctoral cycle. 
So there's two liturgical cycles going on at the same time. The temporal cycle basically takes us through the life of Christ. The sanctoral cycle takes us uh, according to certain saints' feast days, essentially, to put it simply. So we've got seasons, seasons of the life of Christ, and feast days for the saints. Um, you would obviously recognize the different seasons of the temporal cycle, Advent and Christmas, Epiphany. Uh, right now we're in Septuagesimatide, which is pre-Lent, but it's leading us up to Holy Lent, which is sort of a prep, which is a preparation for Easter, Pascha. You've got um, Pentecost um, and uh, well, Ascension Tide before that, and then Pentecost. So these are the liturgical seasons that walk us through the uh, the, the life of Christ, and they're hinged on two points on the birth of Christ and his death and resurrection. So Christmas and Easter are the hinge points, and all of the other temporal seasons are um, in reference to those two, you know, the cycle of incarnation and the cycle of redemption. The, the thing is, though, and so we're all familiar with that. How do the ember weeks fit into the temporal cycle? Okay. Um, yeah, it's almost like they're a... a... Uh, a third track where they interact with both. Okay. The temporal yeah. and the, you are, yeah. <laughs> you, you are anticipating where I am heading. This is where all the confusion comes in. And this is why we don't know what to do with them. Um, we've got these four little mini liturgical seasons called ember tides, um, which don't have, they do have something to do with the liturgical seasons, the temporal cycle, but, um, not in the, not real. They do and they don't. Um, it, it, it's, mm. that's why we're left kind of confused and not knowing what to do with them. Um, so these Ember Weeks were, they were always very special. They're very ancient. They were corporate fasting periods. They had their own proper liturgical rites associated with them. They, the masses, there were special masses written just for these Ember Days. The divine office also had special offices and uh, prayers and colics written for the for these ember days, and so that's the that's the source. It's an understandable reason for for our confusion. They're they're kind of like a square peg in a round hole. They're just like of a they're like of a different ilk. They they don't even mm. have the same character, quite frankly, and, and we'll see why as we as we go. Um, but they, you know, what's that? song three of these things and one is not like the other right yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. not going to sing it but <laughs> um something doesn't belong uh let's let's go through and sort of i want to show you how they stand apart how they're different how the ember days don't fit the normal pattern of the temporal christian year the the, the liturgical christian year as we walk through it today in the normal liturgical year, uh, every Sunday um, is determinative for the week that it initiates thematically, liturgically. So the week, so Sunday determines kind of the, the, the plan and the program liturgically for that week. Um, that theme then gives way uh, to the theme of the next week. Now, sometimes there's concurrent weeks of the same theme, but um, but that theme gives way to the theme of the following week on Saturday evening, specifically after the ninth hour, which we call known. Okay, so three o'clock. 
So known in, in the daily office, there's, there's eight hours of prayer in the daily office. Known is the ninth hour, occurs at three o'clock. After known on Saturday, you shift to the next week. Um, the ember tides don't follow this pattern. Like completely just ignore it. So these, these ember weeks, these ember tides, they're kind of like these self-contained <laughs> little seasons that don't really mm -hmm. fit, don't follow the pattern. They break the pattern. And they are, um, they're not really always immersed or completely connected with the liturgical season that they fall in. And they certainly mm -hmm. weren't originally, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, but, well, they predate the liturgical seasons to start with. <laughs> so that's very important to understand. Um, now, over time, and this adds to the confusion, when the liturgical calendars developed, the ember weeks weren't exercised from the calendar, they were retained. And the liturgical year sort of just was laid over top of them. And as it was laid over top of them, the masses and the, and the, the, the office of the ember weeks began to take on and assume some of the, the character of the liturgical season. So people started to think that the ember days were connected originally that we need if, if we want to understand what they're about we need to understand the liturgical season in which they fall so we began to try to derive their meaning for us from the liturgical season they're in because you know in lent the prayers and the in the ember day masses reflect lenten themes right in pentecost week the prayers in the lent in the ember days during pentecost reflect themes about the holy spirit so this is confusing now all of a sudden Ember days, they're associated with the liturgical season, but they're not. But they are. They have become that way, but that's not their original meaning. Huh, okay? okay, so this is where it starts getting, it, this starts to breed some of the confusion. Um, they, they obviously originally weren't associated with the liturgical season because they predate the liturgical season by hundreds of years. Right. Yeah. So this is what the scholars talk about. And you, you can read everything you read on the Ember Days. They, they say, oh, they're about the liturgical seasons. Well, that's completely false. Oh, they're about harvest. That's not true either. And, and we'll talk about some other theories about what they mean and what they're associated with. But um, let me show a little bit more about how they break the pattern of how the normal liturgical year and liturgical week works. Um, okay. The Ember Days don't actually, the theme, the liturgical theme of the Ember Day doesn't conclude on Saturday at noon, like a normal week would. It actually bleeds into the following Sunday. Huh. Um, now, this is really interesting. Um, and, and this is really important for us to understand, is to see how, to, how distinct the Ember Days are from the liturgical year that developed later. Um, so we enter, let's, let's say we enter, we're about to enter into the spring, um, Ember week, the week after, uh, the first Sunday in Lent. So let's say we enter into Ember week and it consists of, it's the whole week, but what's really emphasized are three fasting days, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, and this week is going to stand on its own in a unique way, originally going way back. Um, the Sunday 
following the Saturday in, in Ember Week um, does not did not move on to the next liturgical theme as it does now. The Sunday following the Ember Saturday was actually referred to as Dominica Vacat or Vacat, which basically means empty Sunday. This is just going to illustrate mm. for us the point I'm trying to make. Um, so in the early days of the church, um, before the seventh century, um, the, there were four Sundays which had no proper masses up until the seventh century. These are the four empty Sundays because these are the four Sundays that follow the Ember Weeks. Wow. Up till the seventh century. Up till the seventh century. Um, and the reason is, is because the mass for Ember Saturday took place at night and it's, and it fulfilled, it satisfied, took the place of Sunday liturgy. Um, and it wasn't until the seventh century that the church, that there were, there were actual masses written, um, with their own propers to fill these four empty Sundays. But up until then, these four Sundays had no proper mass because the Ember Saturday Mass, which was called a vigil mass, uh -huh. and it was done at night, it was it took the place or satisfied um, the requirement of the Sunday liturgy. Now, that is really, really interesting because yeah. what does that say to us? First of all, it, it really speaks to us of the antiquity of these Ember Weeks. It also, it really emphasizes the importance that the early church that the church put on these ember weeks for a saturday oh, yeah. vigil mass to literally supplant and take the place of sunday's mass if we study the period that early period um we we see what's happening in this development this liturgical shift going on in the church where you've got the very ancient ember days predating liturgical years we know it then you have the development of the liturgical year coming in and you see an intersection between the ancient ember days and the development of the liturgical year. Right. And so what's happening is the liturgical year is being laid over top of the pre-existing ember days. The ember days are not removed from the calendar and, the re and they're still in our calendar. We still observe them and because of their antiquity and their importance. And they do something for us that is unique, which you're going to have to stick around for part two to find out. But <laughs> they do something for us that the liturgical temporal calendar does not do for us. And it is absolutely important in my view. And I think that it is especially important in our current culture and in the modern times in which we live. I really think these Ember Days can answer a need that we have um, that, that's missing from our, our cultural life. Anyway, hmm. we'll get to that as we go. So during this time where you've got the four vacant Sundays um, up into the 7th century, you have a real anomaly going on here. I mean, it's things are not matching up real well for the pattern of the liturgical year, the temporal cycle. And you've got a few centuries where you see the church trying to figure out what to do about this. I think for us, one of the questions we're going to ask here is how successful was this? Like, were that was, have we done a good job at retaining the, the robust meaning and importance of the Ember days alongside of, or within um, the concurrent 
you know, temporal cycle of the liturgical right. year, or have the ember days been obscured uh, by the development of the liturgical calendar? And I don't mind telling you, um, I think there's no question they have been obscured uh, for, for, for everybody I've ever known and for myself as well. Um, so these ember tides, they're still on our calendar. We still observe them. The pious and observant still fast. You know, a lot of people, they're so out of touch with them. They're like, I can't tell you how many times people are like, oh, I forgot to fast during Ember Week. By the way, what's that all about anyway? <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> um, <clears throat> and um, they're, but they're still there. And I think that's important. That That's what got me sort of wanting to dig into this was obviously the church felt like these were so important and, 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 and ancient that they couldn't be exercised from our calendar. Why? Um, they, in some ways, even predate Christianity. So there, I've given you a little bit of a clue. Um, so there's been lots of different theories, as I've mentioned, about how, why, when the Ember Days were established. But all of these theories are pretty much anachronistic. They're basically based on later liturgical developments, which have come to influence how the Ember Days are celebrated. And so these later developments are read back into the Ember Days and people are trying to make, like I said, a square peg fit in a round hole that just doesn't really work. I also might add, I'm not criticizing, this is not a criticism. I'm not suggesting that these developments are, are something to regret. Um, that this is how the spirit moves in the church, the liturgical temporal cycle develops in the church, the ember days need to kind of like fit in that somehow and reflect that to a certain extent. And so they've just taken on another layer of meaning, okay? They've taken on another layer of meaning. We need to assimilate them within the liturgical season that we're in. The problem is, is that when we do that to the point where we don't understand what they're really about and what they were originally meant to do for us, and in that when that happens, we've obscured their meaning. So let me give you a list of like some of the most common theories about the origin of the Ember Days. Um, some say, well, they're baptized Roman pagan religious observances that the church co-opted. That's a big one. And they give you, they, they literally try and go in and find these historical pagan um, celebrations and um religious observances and say this one matches this and but they don't match <laughs> they actually mm. don't match it's 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 really a forced thing yeah so when you read that and I've, i'm not going to go into it now because it's just too too much detail but when you read that um you can go study it for yourself you'll see that it doesn't fit uh another one that's very popular is that they find their roots in the synagogue in zechariah 8 uh, chapter 8, we read about how the Jews were instructed to fast on the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months. Um, and, and there's a lot of association there. It's not that the association is completely empty, but it's, it's, that is not, it doesn't fit either. Um, mm -hmm. Another one is, and you may have heard this, that it was standard for ordinations to take place on Ember Days. Right. Um, but that didn't always happen, and it didn't happen everywhere. It only happened in mostly in Rome, and it really only happened primarily in December. Hmm. 
Um, and, and this happened after, you know, this was in the late fifth century, almost the sixth century during Pope uh, Gelasius I. Um, so that doesn't really explain it or fit. They're not four times of ordination, gotcha. even though ordinations did, the church decided, hey, this is a great time to have ordinations <laughs> during right, the right. days of December. That doesn't mean that's what the Ember days were about. Um, and as we've already talked about at length, they've become associated with the liturgical calendar and the different liturgical seasons. Um, the most popular, believe it or not, which is like the least plausible, but the one you read about all the time is that they're associated with uh, agroeconomic factors and, and the harvest, especially. And you'll read detailed descriptions uh, about, you know, how they're associated with wheat, wine and oil at these three different seasons. Of course, that's only three. Uh, it's not four. And when you study this out, it doesn't line up. It just doesn't work. You're again, you're trying to just make something fit that doesn't fit. So these are these are some of the different theories about where the Ember Days uh, come from. So basically, where we at with all of this? We have the Ember Days. We 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 there are they have liturgical seasonal meaning to them, except for September, not so much. Um, we have these other meanings that have attached to them later on, but they're kind of confusing. They don't really make sense. They don't really fit with the temporal cycle. And we're sort of just like lost and confused and we don't know what to do with them. And we're like, okay, I'll fast because it says that on my, it says in my order I'm supposed to fast today. And you know, I'll pray for the clergy because that's a good thing to do because ordinations take place and that sort of thing. But it doesn't really go much further than that. And essentially, what pe people just don't pay much attention to the Ember Days because we don't know what they're all about. And that's where I was a few years ago as well. And that's what sent me on this journey to begin to really try and dig into them. I had a suspicion. I had a sort of intimation, which I'm sure many people listening to have already have the same, what these might be really all about. I wasn't sure. And then I went digging and I found out that I think I'm right. I think, I think I figured out what they were about, or at least that intimation was correct. And I thought, wow, that to understand them in this way and to assimilate them into our, our life, uh, cyclically in this way could be really meaningful to a local parish, a local community. So as we've we've talked about, their meaning has been obscured by later developments um, and misguided scholarship, okay? But there's another reason their meaning has been obscured. The other reason their meaning has been obscured is because of electricity. Hmm. Um, so the first reason, misunderstanding and bad scholarship is easy enough to remedy. We can fix that with some teaching. The second problem, of electricity is going to require a lot more resolve on our part um, if we're going to rehabilitate Ember Days in our life in the modern world. And that's what I'm suggesting we should do. And I mentioned earlier that they may have, they may loosely be, have something to do with pre-Christian Roman pagan practices and other cultures as well. Um, but that's probably the closest thing we could get to those theories. Everything else, all the other suggestions are anachronistic. They're later developments which are being read back into their origin. Um, our answer to what they really mean 
uh, is in the times. Um, we've already ported out four Ember Weeks, Quatora Tempora, and they always, originally, they always occurred in March, June, September, and December. Now, today, they don't always occur, almost always in those months, but because of the liturgical calendar, the, the development of the temporal cycle, um, the spring and summer dates can come a little bit early, not a lot early, uh, because of Pascha. Pascha is a moving date, and, and right. because of that and Pentecost, that shifts the the spring ember week can sometimes fall in February. Um, but they basically always fall in March, June, September, and December. And before the liturgical calendar, and this is also another thing to illustrate the point I've been making, they always fell in March, June, September, and December. So what's important about those four months? What do they share in common? March, June, September, and December. I know it has to do with the sun. Yes, sir. These are the equinox and solstice. So there's two equinoxes and two solstices a year. The spring equinox is in March, the summer solstice in June, the fall equinox in September, and the winter solstice in December. And these cosmological events for us on planet Earth have always been incredibly important. To ancient people. They're not important to us anymore because we have electricity. You know, I didn't even grow up knowing what these things were. I know I didn't what this was. You know, I had to go look it up to understand the tilt of the earth and the revolving and how the sun hit it and um, the equator and how this all worked. But for people, ancient, when I say ancient people, and this is the part that's kind of interesting. I'm talking about people that lived before the 1800s, right? <laughs> I mean, people people in the 1800s were still concerned about these things. So these cosmological occurrences, four times, they mark the astronomical passage uh, from one season to another, and they basically divide the year up into four equal parts. And this event for the entire history of mankind up until about 130 years ago played a huge role in governing the daily lives of all cultures and people and societies in the history of mankind. And for us, this has essentially just been wiped out with technology. Hmm. And this, I mean, this is God running his universe through his, you know, divine agents, and they were in touch with that. And we've basically, through our technology and inventions and urban life, we've pretty much eclipsed the sun, God's appointed sun and moon with hmm. our artificial lights, essentially. And it has changed us. I mean, I think it's, I think, you know, it's impact and this, we could talk, this is another discussion, but how has this impacted our culture, our connection with the scriptures? You read the Psalms. How many of the Psalms aren't really meaningful to us? anymore so many of the psalms are referencing these events in sun moon, and stars yeah um you know the sun if we want to think about this for a little while the sun is real i mean god made the sun and there are you know there's an angel that's in charge of the sun that's making the sun do what the sun is supposed to do that's real like that's really real that's not you know light bulbs aren't real 
light bulbs are made up. They're, they're faux light. <laughs> uh, think about it. If the sun goes away, we're gone. Life's over. We are still, even though we don't realize it, we don't think about it because of electricity, the function of our life and the earth is still being divinely ordered, not through our technological inventions, but still through the sun. And yet, think about how important that is to actual, to reality and to life, and yet we have lost, we have very little connection to that reality. And so the Ember Days are a vestige in our liturgical life of a direct connection to this particular reality of the sun's exactly. changes um, and uh, or the earth's change relative to the sun rather and so so that's that's the primary meaning of the ember days without without it I have no doubt in my mind like this as I've studied this and, and read and looked at it um, the ember days were marking the solstice and equinox that was their meaning they were to mark they were to they were to mark by fasting the four seasons they were basically to 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 delineate man's relationship to god through creation in time and space <laughs> and how we live and to they were basically to you know sanctify time and space in a fallen world That was part one of this exploration of the origin and purpose of the Ember Days. Join us next time for part two as we dive into the value of the Ember Days for us today in our time. <laughs>